Book Two, Chapter Nine of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Paige Isinger. The History of Pompey the Little, or the Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book Two, Chapter Nine. After dinner was over, Mr. Rymer sat himself down to an epic poem, which was then on the anvil, and his head not being clouded with any fumes of indigestion, he worked at it very laboriously till eight or nine o'clock in the evening. Then he took his hat and went out to meet a club of authors, who assembled every Monday night at a little dirty dog-hole of a tavern in Shire Lane, to eat tripe, drink porter, and pass their judgments on the books of the preceding week. Pompey waited on his master, for as Mrs. Rymer had resolutely vowed his destruction, the good-natured bard did not choose to leave him at her mercy. On their arrival in the club-room, they found there assembled a free-thinking writer of moral essays, a no-thinking scribbler of magazines, a Scotch translator of Greek and Latin authors, a Grub Street bookseller, and a fleet parson. These worthy gentlemen immediately surrounded Mr. Rymer with great vociferation and began to curse him for staying so long, declaring it would be entirely his fault if the tripe was spoiled which they very much feared, to prevent which, however, they now ordered it to be served up with all possible expedition, and on its appearance fell to work with the quickest dispatch. The reader will believe that little or no conversation passed among them at table, their mouths being much too busily employed to have any leisure for discourse. But when the tripe was quite consumed, and innumerable slices of toasted cheese at the end of it, then they began to exercise their tongues as readily as they had before done their teeth. By odd luck, every one of these great advancers of modern literature happened to have a dog attending him, and as the gentlemen drew round the fire after supper in a ring, the dogs likewise made an interior semicircle, sitting between the legs of their respective masters. This could not escape the observation of the company, and many trite reflections began to be made on their fidelity, their attachment to man, and above all on the felicity of their condition. For a dog sleeping before a fire is by all people esteemed an emblem of complete happiness. At length they struck into a higher conversation. Gentlemen, says the freethinker, I should be glad to hear your sentiments concerning reason and instinct. I have a curious treatise now by me, which I design very soon to astonish the world with. Tis upon a subject perfectly new, and those dogs there put me in the head of it. The clergy I know will be up in arms against me, but no matter, I'll publish my opinions in spite of all the priests in Europe. Here the fleet parson, thinking himself concerned, took his pipe from his mouth with great deliberation, and said, "'I don't know what your opinions may be, 
but I hope you don't design to publish anything to the disadvantage of that sacred order to which I belong. If you do, sir, I believe you'll find pens enough ready to answer you. Yes, sir, no doubt I will, replied the freethinker. And who cares for that? Perhaps you, sir, may do me the honor to be my antagonist, but I defy you all. I defy the whole body of the priesthood. Sir, I love to advance a paradox. I love a paradox at my heart, sir, and I'll, I'll show you some sport very shortly. What do you mean by sport, sir? cries the doctor. If you write as you talk, I hope you'll be set in the pillory for your sport. You are bloody complacent, sir, returned the freethinker. But I'd have you to know we are not come to such a pass yet in this country as to persecute people for searching after truth. You priests I know would be glad to keep us all in ignorance, but the age won't be priest-ridden any longer. There is a noble spirit and freedom of inquiry now subsisting in the nation. People are determined to canvass things freely and go to the bottom of all subjects without regarding base prejudices of education. The shops abound with a number of fine treatises written every day against religion to the honor and glory of the nation. To its shame and damnation, rather, cries the fleet parson. But what is your paradox, sir? Why, this is my paradox, sir, replied the freethinker. I undertake to prove that brutes think and have intellectual faculties. That, perhaps, you'll say is no novelty, because many others have asserted the same thing before me. But I go farther, sir, and maintain that they are reasonable creatures, amoral and gents. And I will maintain that they are mere machines, cries the parson, against you and all the atheists in the world. Sir, you may be ashamed to prostitute the noble faculty of reason to the beasts of the field. Don't tell me of reason, said the freethinker. I don't care one half penny for reason. What is reason, sir? What is reason, sir? resumed the doctor. Why, reason, sir, is a most noble faculty of the soul, the noblest of all the faculties. It discerns and abstracts, and compares and compounds in all that. And roasts eggs, too, does it not? You forgot one of its noble faculties, cries the other. But I will maintain that brutes are capable of reason, and that they have given manifest proofs of it. Did you never hear of Mr. Locke's parrot, sir, that held a very rational conversation with Prince Maurice for half an hour? What say you to that, sir? By my faith, gentlemen, said the Scotch translator, interrupting them. Upon my word, you are got here into a very deep, mysterious question, which I do not very well understand what to make of. 
but by my faith I have always thought brutes to have something particular in their intellectual faculties of their souls. Ever since I read, what do you call him there, the Roman historian? For why? You know he tells us how the geese discovered to the Romans that the Gauls were coming to plunder the capital. Now, by my soul, they must have been a damned sensible flock of geese, and very great lovers of their country, too, which, let me tell ya, is the greatest virtue under heaven. Besides, doth not Homer teach us that Ulysses' dog Argus knew his old master at his return home after he had been absent ten or twelve years at the siege of Troy? Now, by Jove, he was a plaguy cunning dog, and had a devilish good memory, otherwise he could not have remembered his old crony so long. Before the Scotchman had finished his speech, the two other disputants, whose spirits were kindled with controversy, resumed their argument, and fell upon one another again with so much impetuosity that no voices could be heard but their own. The scene which now ensued consisted chiefly of noise and scolding equal to anything that passes among the orators at Robin Hood's alehouse. In short, there was not a scurrilous term in the English language which was not vented on this occasion, till at length the fleet parson, heated with rage and beer, flung his pipe at his antagonist, and was proceeding to blows had he not been restrained by the rest of the company. The festivity of the evening being by this means destroyed, the club soon afterwards broke up, and the several members of it retired to their several garrets. As Mr. Rymer was walking home in a pensive solitary mood, wrapped up in contemplation on the stars of heaven, and perhaps forgetting for a few moments that he had but threepence halfpenny in his pocket, two young gentlemen of the town, who were upon the hunt after amorous game, followed close at his heels. They quickly smoked him for a queer fish, as the phrase is, and began to hope for some diversion at his expense. The moon now shone very bright, and Mr. Rymer, whose eyes were fixed with rapture on that glorious luminary, began to apostrophize her in some poetical strains from Milton, which he repeated with great emphasis aloud. In the midst of this, the two gentlemen broke out in a profuse fit of laughter, at which the bard turned round in surprise, but soon recovering himself, he cast a most contemptuous look at them for their ignorance and want of taste. However, as the chain of ideas in his mind was by this means disturbed, he thought it most advisable to make the best of his way home, and for that purpose called Pompey to follow him. Pompey indeed made many efforts, and seemed desirous to obey, but in vain the poet called, in vain the dog endeavored to follow, and it was a long while before Mr. Rymer, whose thoughts were a little muddled with contemplation and porter, found out that the two gentlemen had tied a handkerchief around his neck. He then stopped to demand his property, but finding himself pretty roughly handled, he began to think his own person in danger. Taking to his heels, therefore, he ran away with the utmost precipitation, and left his dog behind him, who on his part was not at all sorry to be delivered from such a master. End of Book 2, Chapter 9